Hi folks, Jack Spierka with another additional Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, April the 9th, 2012, and today uh, we are doing episode 876 of the Survival Podcast. We skipped the listener call show on Friday. I had an interview I wanted to push into the afternoon, and the listener call shows like I'm doing today take about twice as much time to produce as every other show that I do. So I uh, pushed it till Monday, and we're going to do that today, and that means we'll do our normal listener uh, feedback show that comes in by email on Tuesday, and then we'll have regular programming through the rest of the week, culminating with another one of these shows on Friday. All right, before we get into today's uh, calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one. HarvestEating.com with the illustrious Chef Keith Snow. Hey, Keith is going to be on Rural Delivery TV. Uh, I'll have to put out a, a, an announcement about that more specifically, but starting next month. And uh, so he's getting his own show out on uh, on Dish and uh, uh, DirecTV and stuff like that. So it's going to be cool for him. But I'll tell you what, Chef Keith is really great at teaching people to cook seasonally and locally, and that means all the stuff that we grow or get for our farmer's market or our CSAs or things like that, we actually can figure out what to do with it. And cooking's a life skill, in my opinion. We're storing all this food in case we ever need to rely on it. Don't you think you'd like to actually know how to cook it, make it into something really good? Well, Chef Keith can help you with that because he's not just a chef. He's a prepper just like us. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com and get the steak seasoning. I know I always say it, but every time I cook a steak, I'm into the drawer and pulling out Chef's Keith's uh, steak seasoning. You try it, you'll see why. Next up today, WesternBotanicals.com. Now, when I need something herbal and it's not in my backyard or I can't just walk out into the woods and find it, then I call Western Botanicals and say, do you have this? And the answer is always yes. And if I ask them something like, well, is it either wildcrafted or organically grown? I don't even bother because I know the answer is always going to be Yes. Where they're most advantageous, though, is when I have like an issue I'm trying to deal with or somebody in my family's trying to deal with, and I don't want to use conventional medicines, and I want to try to give herbal uh, herbal uh, preparations an opportunity to solve the problem first, especially things that are chronic but not life-threatening. That you just can, can we do something about this in a more gentle, more natural way? And I call them up and tell them what's going on, and then they tell me what to try. And that is, uh, that's awesome. To be able to call and get real people that really care on the phone at any time, that's the best reason to do business with Western Botanicals. If it's an herb, you'll find it there. If it's part of something to make herbal preparations, you'll find it there. If you need advice, you'll find it there. You need caring people that care about you and want to help you, you'll find it with Western Botanicals. And uh, remember, if you are a member support brigade member, they give you their uh, discount uh, premium membership that's usually $50 a year for free the first year. And if you want to keep it going into your second year, at half off at 25 bucks. That gives you 25% off everything they sell. Uh, so for those of you that use herbals a lot in your life, that will pay for Member Support Brigade all by itself. Uh, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. The promised video of the update of the swale system is going to come out sometime this week. Uh, really busy. we got another trip to see the CPA and things like that, so uh, it might take toward the end of the week, but we will get it up for you. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode if you do it annually, and it's about 20 cents an episode if you do it monthly or by any other frequency. Um, want to remind you guys, you will hear from two members of the expert council today. 
when you make calls in that are about certain things, you can uh, maybe mention even expert council members. I would advise you that if you make a call to me for an expert council member, that maybe you send me an email right after that and it says, uh, you know, expert council in the subject line and just say the number you called from because I could find the call quicker that way. I do get a lot of calls. I would say 40, 50% of them end up on the air. Half of them don't. I try to give some priority to the expert council calls because these guys have offered to serve. The people that we have so far, Stephen Harris on all things energy-related, Paul Wheaton uh, helping to back me up on the permaculture stuff, uh, Darby Simpson, real life, real world, beyond organic farmer. Uh, we're going to hear from him today. Uh, and Chef Keith Snow. If you guys got some cooking questions, man, Chef Keith is willing to serve. So those are our four members of the ex expert council list far and I'll be looking to expand that council and get up a proper page with everybody on it and their bios and everything very very soon just been busy and haven't done that yet so there you go so without further ado let's go ahead and take your first call remember if you want to call in for a show like this the way to do it is pick up your phone mash some numbers the numbers are 866-65-THINK that's 866-65-THINK because we encourage you to think for yourself around here but ask questions and make me think make our experts think And I'll try to make you think back, and then we will all mentally advance together because we'll all worry about uh, how to think instead of what to think. We'll have a little bit of that on the final call today. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Ben from Denver. Uh, where is my mind on the forums, MSB member? My question is, uh, I just got finished listening to episode 866 on uh, AOCS currency and all that good stuff. Um, I'm looking to, at some point, get more involved with my pension plan and financial advisor who kind of just work for a government agency and they just kind of run all that for us and we just trust that they're doing the best job. I'd really like to talk to them about moving more assets into gold and silver and, you know, things that are more stable. Um, I don't really feel too educated about the whole thing, so I... I'm worried I'm going to go and talk to them and, you know, get kind of pushed around and they're going to tell me what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And I just kind of want a better idea of how I can get grounded and uh, more more educated to a point where I can go and talk to them and feel confident about the decisions that I want them to make and things like that. So um, any words on that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, yeah, I guess it, what it really comes down to is I just don't want to go in and be pushed around and told what I should and shouldn't do. And want to be stable with my funds and uh, my, you know, hard-earned money that's going towards my pension. Uh, any thoughts on that would be great. Thank you for all you do. Uh, just did my hunter safety class yesterday. I did my first hunting, uh, first hunting trip this year because of finding somebody on your forum. I've learned to pick locks and sprouting a bunch of seeds and uh, got a whole bunch of other stuff lined up. So thank you for all the motivation and things that you do. All right, well, let's start out with one of the things clearly we need to kind of beef you up on here knowledge-wise, and that is that odds are with with a pension program and a government office, your say-so about what happens with your money is either going to be completely and totally non-existent or you're going to have a group of funds and things that you can pick from. So in that instance, the one simplification there is you can just say, what's everything available to me in my pension fund as far as my choices for investing options? And you can sit down and examine them all and learn what each one of them are, what they invest in, how they're invested in it, what their track record is, what their forward-looking statements are, and you can make your best choice out of what's available. And it probably ain't that great, but there you go. You will probably have an option in there for something like cash fund, money market, or bond funds. 
that are relatively stable and the safest, most conservative investments that will also have the lowest long-term returns. So you have to balance between safety and return. And you have to look and pay attention to the market and what's going on. You have to find out from these people what is the frequency. Some, some plans, you can make a change to your allocation anytime you want. Sometimes you can only do it so many times a year. Sometimes you can only do it at certain times of the year. So your meeting with these people doesn't need to be, hey, what are you doing with my money? And I want to do this with my money. Because in that type of a program and plan, generally that conversation can't even happen. All right? It just, it just can't happen because that's not the way those type of plans work. You have very limited choices. And even with an employer provided in the private sector 401k, usually there's somewhere between six and 20 funds of various varieties. Most have a, a general number, somewhere in a number of eight to 12 is what I've seen most of. And you've got to pick within there. So they have these restrictions. So that's the first half. Now the second half is how much of this is being provided by your employer? How much is this being provided by you? How much do you currently have in there? These are things you need to assess for yourself. And what is your current growth? How long have you been there? What vesting do you have? Vesting means um, if you left, what portion of their contributions do you keep? And what portions do you surrender? And what is your vesting period to be 100% vested? Generally, it's somewhere between five and seven years with most jobs, which means after five years or after seven years or four or six or whatever it is, if your employer has contributed to your plan $40,000 and you leave and you roll that plan into an IRA or something like that, you keep it all. So you need to know what your vesting period is, what your options are, what your contributions are, um, and what their contributions are. Those are your primary things. And then you need to evaluate that money and, and do the best you can with the choices you have. And that's something I really can't do for you. Okay. Now, then you have to decide based on that assessment. So get that done. Right. Do I want to continue my contributions? And you may or may not. And one thing is with government, sometimes their contributions are not contingent upon yours. There are pension plans still out there where you, you know, your employer puts aside 3% of your pay for you every single paycheck, even if you contribute nothing. And in that case, you're more likely to consider making your contributions outside of that program where you have more authority over it. So that would be a situation where you have to decide do you want to go this alone or do you want to try to find a good financial advisor. And for people like us that make $40,000 to $200,000 a year, there's not a lot of great choices from financial advisors. It's a consumer-level advisor. They're trained to sell you whatever they're supposed to sell you that month. They're trained to build relationships, and they're trained to keep you 100% invested in things that pay the company or pay them. And I'm sorry, and I know I'm pissing financial advisors off, but that's the truth. There are some rare exceptions in there, but most of them, they do what they're trained. And they're not even doing it because they're jerks or anything. They're doing it because they're trained and they believe in what they've been trained to do. They believe in the long-term potential of the marketplace, etc. ad nauseum. My personal belief is that it is an advantage to have them because you can ask them questions, get them to do work for you, get them to do information for you. If you've made a trade that year and you're not sure if it has tax implications, they can tell you. They can tell you before you make the trade. But that's what I see them for. Hey, uh, last year we made a stock trade, and I know it has tax implications. I need to know what my basis was. I don't want to go, you find it, because uh, you make money off me, and they'll take care of that for you. And, and that's where I see them having their greatest value. You need to pay attention to your investments on your own. And I can't tell you, well, invest in gold, invest in silver, do this, do that. 
because I don't know your situation and I don't give financial advice. What I would tell you you need to do is work very hard at increasing your financial IQ and understanding the current state of the economy and where we're going and what indicators to watch. Start tuning in to CNN Money and Bloomberg Information TV and stuff like that. Just a couple minutes a day. Just to start to, and when you hear a word you don't know, write it down, look it up. Learn the word. Uh, a great book to help increase your financial IQ. I don't like everything this guy has to say, but I like a lot of it. I think he's a little bit, um, not salesy, it's even worse than that. A little bit flim-flamish on some things. But I also think that 95% of his information is damn solid. That's Robert Kiyosaki. And if you get the book called Rich Dad's Guide to Investing, it will help change your mindset to more of an investor, business owner mindset, even if your primary source of income is going to come from being an employee. And it's that's what we do with the money that's left over after we spend the money to survive each month, even if we're doing the income as an employee. You'll start to understand why being an entrepreneur makes a lot of sense. But those are the steps I would take initially. And I don't think I can help you go further until you take those steps. Assessment of what's available, assessment of whether you want to still contribute, assessment of what your options are, assessment of, in your judgment, what are the best options inside your own program, how do you safeguard your money, what percentage do you want to safeguard, and then if there's money left over or you're going to cease your internal contributions, how you're going to set that up and where you're going to go. I would advise you highly, highly, with initially setting up investments outside of your pension program, to not worry about setting up an IRA, a Roth IRA, anything like that initially, until there's several thousand dollars there, it's, it's penny any stuff, don't even worry about investing it, open up a good savings account with the best return you can get on interest, which is crap, and just start putting money in there. Just start putting, put it, it may be in a separate bank, maybe go ING Direct, something like that. Something that makes it a little more complicated to take the money back out, put it into your checking account and spend it. Just put one extra step in there and start putting money away and then concurrently do the research about how you want to allocate that money going down the road. You can always put your annual chunk for IRA allocated in right before the end of the tax year. So there's no reason to lock your money up until you're sure. Take those steps first and start increasing your financial IQ at your level where you're at self-admitted. Those are your first steps. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Josh from Nashville. I have a question for Darby about pasture poultry. Um, I'm wanting to find out how many pins you can run on one open acre through a whole season. I'm thinking you might be able to get like five 250-square-foot pins at one time and repeat like every four weeks or so, but... I'm probably wrong about that. Also, if he has time, could he tell me what he found to be the biggest problem with Southern system? That's the system I'm hoping to start with, and I hope maybe he can give me a heads up. Well, thanks, Jack. Well, now it's time to hear from uh, one of our expert council members, Darby Simpson. I'll come back after he answers and uh, tell you what I think, but I probably won't have a lot to add because this is not an area of my expertise. This is exactly the type of question that we put together the uh, expert council for. If you want to know what to do with a half a dozen hens that you're getting eggs with in a backyard, I can I can give you some good examples and answers and stuff like that. But raising uh, large amounts for meat and pasturing them, that's Darby's area of expertise. So Darby, take it away. Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson from Simpson's Farm Market in central Indiana, calling in to answer Josh's question about how many pins per acre we can use in a pasture poultry operation. 
really what this boils down to is stocking density. And I personally use 120 square foot pens, and I use a stocking density of 1.33 square foot per bird. Um, now, we can use a, a higher or lower stocking density, and lots of folks do different things, but that's just what we've decided to use. And um, uh, considering that our pen is 120 square feet, and we've got some space in, uh, between the pens and, and around the pens, we're not actually using just 120 square foot per day, uh, we can do some calculations, and we need to consider that our birds are on pasture for about 40 days. And once we do all the math and we plug all that in, what I end up with is that each one of my pens requires about 6,550 square feet or approximately 0.15 acres per pen. Now, that equates to about seven pens per, per acre and roughly 630 birds per acre per year. Uh, using Josh's 250-square-foot pen, I see that we can get about 185 birds per pen, but we're probably going to use closer to a third of an acre per pen, so most likely he's only going to get about three pens per acre. I'd also like to point out that a 250-square-foot pen might be pretty heavy, and he needs to make sure that he can move that easily each and every day. Um, also, you would not want to cover the same ground twice in a year unless you're absolutely positive that your soil can handle the high nitrogen content from the birds. Most likely, I doubt that it could, but even if it could handle that, all that nitrogen, we'd be better off to take and spread that manure around and grow more grass. We're working with the largest solar collector on the face of the planet, and what we want to do is spread that manure, grow as much grass as we possibly can, and convert that sunlight into meat by grazing ruminants on our grass. And Josh also had a question about what the biggest issue is with the solid system. And quite frankly, in my experience, it's the pen itself. What I've found to be the case, at least in the Midwest, is that these pens are ovens. They get way too hot, and we've had a really high death rate of birds, especially in July and August and early September when the temperatures seem to be the highest. So we ended up ditching those square, short pens for a hoop house style. And what I did is I started with some plans from a guy named Robert Plamondon out in Oregon. Now, Mr. Plamondon actually uses this hoop-style house for layers, and so we had to take and modify that for the Midwest because we have pretty strong storms here, we have a lot higher heat, we have a lot more humidity, and we're raising broilers. The other issue I, I found to be a problem with the Salton pen is that it's a single-use piece of equipment. I didn't find this to be very efficient, so we made sure that when we modified this hoop house design, it was multi-use. And by multi-use, what I mean is that we can hang a nest box in it, and we can run laying hens in this same house. We can also use it as a farrowing hut for hogs. Um, they do tend to beat it up a little bit, but it's pretty easy to repair. We can use it as a portable shade and shelter for sheep. Uh, we run our Thanksgiving turkeys in these same pens using the same waterers and feeders as we do for the broilers. And we can even use one of these for a, a shelter for a small calf. They're actually tall enough that a, a guy that's about six foot can almost stand totally upright inside of it, and it's got a door. This also makes loading broilers into the crates for processing really easy, fast, and efficient. Um, it can also double as a greenhouse in the winter by dropping the tarps we can cover this with plastic and use it as a miniature greenhouse uh, any time of the year that we're not using it for one of these uh, uh, livestock animals that might be in it. Now, my hoop house is pretty heavy. It is a little bit difficult to move. I do it with a two-wheel dolly. Um, if you're on rough terrain or 
trying to go uphill, you're going to find that to be pretty tough. But it will withstand high winds. And in central Indiana, we get winds up to 70 miles an hour. And it was just something I decided I didn't want to lose any sleep at night, wondering if this thing was going to blow over. So what I've done is is have some uh, photos linked in today's show notes so that Josh can take a look at my hoop house. I'll also link a PDF file that's Robert Wilmondon's basic framing plan for the hoop house. And I think between those two things, Josh can take a look and see what we've done. One other thing I want to mention is that a friend of mine named Chris Jordan of Chisholm Heritage Farm in Chesterfield, Illinois, uses a hoop house tent as well, but it's a lot lighter and it's a lot easier to move. Now, it's not as predator-proof as my pen is, and the way that Chris combats that is he puts portable electric netting all the way around his hoop houses, and that keeps out any unwanted predators, canines, and things of that nature. Personally, I don't like moving electric netting, so I've chosen to use a heavier pen, but this will give Josh two different options. We'll be sure to link in today's show notes to Chris's website and to the basic plans that he used as well so that Josh has got a couple of options to look at for a hoop house. I hope that this answers Josh's question. Thanks for allowing me to call in and uh, take another stab at a question. And if anybody else out there has any more questions about pastured poultry, pork, or grass-fed beef, please feel free to to call in. To learn more about us, check us out at simpsonfamilyfarm.com. Thanks, Jack. Well, the only thing I have to add to that is uh, I will have uh, a section in the uh, show note links that says Darby's Links. And under there will be links to everything he said, because how in the hell could I possibly add anything to that? And uh, for those of you uh, that uh, that are considering doing this type of an operation, I think you just got uh, got an education for somebody that's been doing it. It may save you massive amounts of grief. And I also think a lot of us that are more of the smaller homestead types um, that might want to raise... Yeah, I don't know, 40, 50 birds a year, we could build one of these and run one rotation a year and maybe build, uh, you know, a hog tractor and run two hogs behind that rotation and, uh, we could, uh, we could put it, produce quite a bit of meat with what Darcy, uh, Darby just told us there. So, uh, hey, Darby, thank you for, uh, for always doing such a great job and I'll put, uh, links in the show notes. Let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Hello, Jack. This is Eric in Florida. Could you please take a few minutes to describe to us what martial law in the United States would be like? Could you please give us some advice on how to live in that situation, along with some do's and don'ts? Thank you very much. Well, I guess the questions all couldn't be real happy stuff today, huh? We started out with how to invest our money and then how to take care of chickens. Now we got to talk about martial law. And no, no, uh, no uh, uh, pushback on the call or anything there. It's a legitimate question. Well, here's a couple different things to think about. Number one, what would it be like would be highly situationally dependent. Are we having martial law, for instance, because there's a pandemic and the area that's under martial law is relatively peaceful, but the government has simply decided to impose quarantine on the area and people are relatively in compliance with said quarantine? Uh, then the biggest issues are how long and do you have enough stuff to write it out? And is it a legitimate utilization of martial law? In an instance like that, it may very well be. I know we're all very libertarian-minded around here, at least I am, and I'll damn well go where I please when I please and have freedom of travel as a citizen. makes a lot of sense to me, but if there's a deadly pandemic out there, I don't want to be out there. Uh, so that would be, let's say, martial law light. 
Now, is it because uh, the economy is beginning to completely collapse and degrade? Uh, people are having their Social Security cut, they're having their pensions cut, they're having their welfare cut, they're having their food stamps cut. Basically, everything's being cut, put into a position of austerity. The way things are going on in Greece, people are throwing Molotov cocktails, burning down buildings, smashing things, holding up signs that say, eat the rich, and they mean you, because you made $40,000 last year, so they consider you rich. They're burning down neighborhoods, burning down houses. Frankly, frankly, you might have a bigger problem with the the thing that's causing the martial law, the rioting, than the martial law itself. Again, assuming that you have enough supplies in place to ride it out and ability to defend yourself. The problem starts to shape up when the martial law apparatus gets turned on the people that are trying to just hold things together, such as Hurricane Katrina, where they start going door-to-door, taking away your means of defense. This is why I recommend that maybe you go out and buy yourself a $120 high-point uh, pistol and a $79 NEF uh, break-action shotgun. And if somebody ever comes and asks, do you have any guns, you tell them, yeah, I have these two right here, and I want to keep them. And make them take them away from you. Don't just say you can have them. Uh, don't fight or argue. Just say, hey, this is against my rights, whatever. That way they'll take them and they'll probably go away and not search for more. And you might have a few more, just saying. Because I don't want to be without a means of defense in a situation like that. Call them dummy guns, even though they're real. And they actually do serve a purpose and may be useful as well. So that's just a thought there. Um, the biggest thing that we need to do is twofold. One, we need to determine, do we live in a place where it's likely that martial law will be imposed and heavily enforced? And if we live in a small rural area, small town area, the answer is probably no. Right? There may be a curfew put in place. During, you have no idea what causes this, right? That's the problem with it. It's not like we can say, martial law do too, because there's all different scenarios that could cause this to be declared. Uh, If we live in a high-density population, suburb, city area, urban area, the, the answer is probably yes. Okay, So that means that if we don't want to be under martial law, that we need to have a place to go, and we need to be prepared in advance to monitor these situations like we all should be doing anyway, almost like constantly having your finger on the patient's pulse, Doctors can't stand there holding your pulse when you're in intensive care units. They keep a thing, a monitor hooked up to you that tells them if you start to have too slow or too rapid of a heartbeat, whether you're going into critical condition or just showing signs that something's not right. So we need to have kind of our spider sense tuned that way. We need to be paying attention. We can use things like Alerts USA, which you get over a 50% discount on from the MSB. We can just simply watch the news, pay attention to what's going on. Talk to our neighbors. Keep an eye on things. When something looks like it's going to be ominous and your gut tells you that you're right, if you take an unexpected three-day vacation and end up being wrong, you're better off being wrong that way than wrong the other way around. But what it could be like is a complete, total seizure of resources into the public domain. 
those of us that have large amounts of stuff stored, it is possible. Well, I'm going to hold my thoughts on that for a great comment by uh, by Top Cone in just a minute. But it is possible that if you were known to have large stockpiles of anything, that they could be seized. Uh, there are standing executive orders. Obama just signed a new one, but it's nothing new. It's been there for a long damn time, going all the way back to FDR, giving the government the right to seize certain things, including food and other things, uh, water, any resources necessary for the safety and security of the nation in the event of something uh, going completely catastrophic. And in that means that you maybe want to have some OPSEC and some low profile on certain things. That doesn't mean that you get scared and go down in a hole in the ground, but it does mean that maybe you don't put up a sign that says, I have stuff here. Okay? Uh, people say, well, what about you, Jack? Well, somebody has to do what I do. Somebody has to do what I do. Somebody has to take the risk, and I'm willing to do so. Right? Because I think it's more important that we get as many people prepared as possible. I think that the biggest thing we need to look at is the government recommendation that we be able to shelter in place for three days woefully inadequate, and that everybody in this country as part of a civil defense program should get to a position and place in life where they can make at least 30 days. The reality is, while that might not be enough for certain situations that are possible, and maybe even certain situations that are probable, it's not because 30 days itself is not sufficient. It's because 30 days is not something everybody's going to do. If we could bring this nation to a 30-day state of readiness in each individual household, or even 80 to 90% of households, we would be able to get through most of these situations without them going catastrophic. To understand martial law, we have to understand that there's two ways it can be declared. One, because the government wants to do something against the will of the people, and frankly, that's the second American revolution, right? I mean, when that happens, people have to make a choice. I, I think people in the military have to make a choice at that point. People in law enforcement, and I don't even want to go there because it's such a scary thing. I hope we never are confronted with that. Or it's a response to a little legitimate threat to the security of individuals. And liberties, yes, are usually trampled and taken away during that as an excuse to get things done, right? When you normally couldn't get them done, just like Rahm Emanuel tells us. But in those instances, you actually might be happy to see martial law. Because if the riot is going on and beginning to burn down neighborhoods and they're three blocks over and heading your way, right, then maybe you're going to be happy when the, some people come in with authority and put a stop to it. So we have to look more at the driving force of what causes the event that causes martial law. And the word is fear. The word is fear. There won't be food tomorrow. There won't be enough. I am going to go without. I just watched a great show that illustrated this that had nothing to do with it. It was uh, Anthony Bourdain. Uh, no reservations. He's in Africa. He's eating all this different food like he normally does. He's on the Travel Channel, for those that may not know who he is. And they're in this place where a lot of these people are watching them film all this food being eaten. And he's eating like three meals. And some of these people had had a meal in three days. A single meal. So they tell this lady that they're buying food from, we will buy all the food you want. Let's let people line up and give everybody a meal. It almost went into total anarchy and rioting. The bigger kids started shoving the smaller kids, started the big guys, started shoving the small guys. Eventually, a couple big guys kind of got together and became the government, so to speak, and basically said, get in line. And, of course, they made sure they got theirs, right? But then once they got theirs, they basically said, we're going to have order here. And if it runs out before it runs out, tough, tough crap. They were cracking people with, with whips, right? And, and this is just, just because the food was being given away. 
There wasn't even a crisis other than the standing crisis. But, you know, ten minutes before this started, there was no cause of commotion. Nobody was trying to steal. There's food all over with vendors, and nobody's trying to steal it, or at least not in large numbers. Nobody's ganging up on anybody. But as soon as the food was given away, they went into a mob mentality. Because of fear, I will, if I get in line at the back, I might not eat today. That's what drives this stuff. So the way we put a lid on it is we get as many people prepared as possible. And again, I feel that it is a part of civil defense. And I, it, it, I think it's a damn shame and a disgrace that our government hasn't gotten behind a 30-day readiness plan. A 72-hour readiness plan and only paying lip service to it is a disservice to the people and the citizens of this nation. Let's take another call. Jack, it's Carson from Canada here. I feel compelled to comment on something that you mentioned twice last week, interestingly enough, both in uh, listener call-in show, well, both in listener shows, the feedback show and then the call show. You said that, uh, and, you know, I can understand the reasoning, you said that Canada, if the Keystone Pipeline doesn't go through, is just going to build a pipeline and then tank it most likely down to Texas. Well, I can tell you, I'm right in the middle of the oil sands. Like, right in the middle of it. Fort McMurray, Alberta, that's where it's centered. That's where I am. Um, and I'm not scared about OPSEC, don't worry. Um, but I can tell you the plan. There is a p proposed pipeline called the Northern Gateway Pipeline that will go west out to Kitimat, British Columbia. From Kitimat, British Columbia, the oil will be sold to China. So, that sucks for the U.S., but in a, way it's, in a way it's good for Canada, because if we do that, then we've got two main purchasers, and if the U.S. fails like we suspect, well, then we've got a backup plan. So, it kind of sucks for the U.S. if that happens, but it's good for us, so I don't know. I, I kind of like where I'm at right now. Hope you have a great day. Bye. Well, my primary reason for thinking that they would tank the oil down to Houston, um, going with an, and I guess, you know, it doesn't really make sense because it would be a very long pipeline to the East Coast where every single ship's got to go through the Panama Canal and that doesn't make a lot of sense. It adds a lot of logistics and cost and, and what have you as well, uh, was the refinement capacity of China. Now, it turns out that as much as I've talked about how China's developing, I've missed that one, and China has been on a course to increase its capacity uh, by 50% by the year 2015 since 2010. Uh, as of 2011, they had made huge strides at doing that, and we're almost there, and uh, have continued with a target goal to increase the refinement capacity by yet another 16% uh, by the year 2016 over what they have already done. Um, and that trend continues. I found an article out just this week on uh, Canada Free Press about this, and nothing has changed since uh, I found those older articles. Uh, if, like, those of you that think we cons uh, consume 20% of the world's, world's oil uh, need to realize that soon we may not, and it may not be good for us, as Carson says. Um, but the demand for oil in, in India and China both are going up. Both of the nations are providing loans to oil-rich countries in exchange for oil in the future. So basically they're making deals with countries that produce a lot of oil 
and uh, saying, hey, look, here's the deal. We'll loan you money. China and India are both doing this, but you commit to selling us oil, putting us to the front of the line to buy your oil in the future. So while the current administration is saying, well, what's this dirty oil? What's dirty oil? Uh, Canada's going to pump the oil. That's something me and Carson agree on. Canada's going to pump the oil. They're going to pump as much of it as they can. They're going to sell as much of it as they can. It's going to burn. It's going to go in the atmosphere. I'm not worried about global warming, but I'm not happy about the toxins that are created and the legitimate pollution that comes from oil. But it's the reality of the day, and they're going to do it. And it's going to be, and we're going to burn it too. We're not going to, maybe not that oil, but we're going to burn just as much oil as we can get our hands on anyway. We're just going to make it cost more. That's that's the goal we have here. So while we're saying we don't want dirty oil, China's competing for it. India's competing for it. So while we, while we should be saying, look, Canada, our northern neighbor, one of the friendliest nations we have, this is jobs, this is energy, and the oil's going to burn anyway, let's compete for it. Let's do domestic oil production. I consider Canada far more domestic oil production. I know it's not really, but I consider it far more than oil production out of uh, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and all the conflicts that go on there, supposedly because we need the oil. Well, what we really want to do is control that part of the world and use it as a fear stick against the rest of the world. Because if we're really concerned about oil security, we wouldn't be turning down oil from one of our best allies, under calling it dirty oil as though there's such a thing as clean oil. And we would be creating jobs both here and in our allied nation to the north. And we would be lowering the cost of energy and we would be trying to pull this nation out of the recession that we're in. Um, I think not completing the pipeline is stupid. And I think that here's the problem. Even if we eventually said, yeah, we're going to do it, I think the Canadians would be like, hook it up, eh? But they're already going to have the pipeline built to the West Coast that Carson is talking about, and they're already going to have agreements with China, and now we have a greater competition for that resource. Great, guys, great. But don't worry, because you know solar and wind will fix it all, Solendra. You know, I mean... It is a perfect example, yet again, of this nation shooting itself in the foot. And those of you that get upset with me about, you know, I'm not going to vote for a candidate I don't want, here's one place where a Mitt Romney might make a different decision. You might be able to make a point for me there. Don't think it matters. In my state, I think that the election's already preconceived. Uh, but I do want to say something on this about... I've talked about this issue, and, and I am about done with it, but I want to put this to you another way, and I want to thank Trek Van Dan on the forum, or actually the blog comments, for making me see this and be able to explain it this way. I have stated that this year I will not vote for either of the mainstream candidates, the Republican or the Democrat. I will withhold my vote from both. If I have to, I'll write in Ron Paul. I'll write, vote for a third-party candidate that I do think would do a better job, but I won't vote for somebody I don't want, and I don't want either of them, and I'm done voting for the lesser of two evils. I don't think I've been clear enough explaining myself on this, though. I don't just think that one's the lesser of two evils. I think both of them are traitorous. I think they're traitorous in the way that they'll handle this nation and heading us even quicker into economic default. I think they're destroying our country. I think that either one of them will continue us on that path. And I also have decided this is the best way to turn this. When I vote for a candidate... When I vote for any candidate, I say I'm going to take A or B or C or D or E. When I vote for them, they're receiving my endorsement as a citizen. They are receiving, and that's how that's how I think everybody should see your vote. It's not just who you want less or who you want more. As a citizen, 
using your right as a citizen to elect your leadership, you are providing an endorsement to that candidate and validating their authority should they be victorious. So if you voted for Obama in the last election, you endorsed him as a citizen and you currently validate the things that he's doing through your endorsement. If you voted for Bush the first time around, I did, mistake, willing to admit it, right? But I shouldn't have voted for Gore. I should have voted my conscience back then. And I didn't see it that way then. And I'm not telling you to see it that way now. I'm not trying to make this issue any more political than it has to be the pipeline issue this call started on. But it just was an opportunity for me to clarify something. And if you've been struggling with the fact that I'm telling you I will not vote for anyone but Obama, that's not going to be my litmus test. It's, it's not Obama, great. I don't care if it's a dog. It's, it's just not. There's why. I will never again endorse a person as a citizen through my vote and validate their authority if I believe that person should not be running the nation in the first place. Not, I'm not completely, I mean, come on, if a decent candidate comes along, I'm not completely in love with them, but I think that like their heart's in the right place, I disagree. Folks, that's Ron Paul. I don't agree with everything Ron Paul says, but I believe he's worthy of my endorsement as a citizen, and that if he has authority of president, I'm willing to back that authority with my endorsement. Current candidate pool? And it's, it's really down to Romney. Santorum's about to bail, guys. Do, you don't even hear about him anymore. Uh, Romney, Obama, neither one's worthy of my endorsement. Just a thought. Uh, just a different way to see things. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Kevin in Texas. I have a spot on my land that the grass is brown or nothing grows right there. It's a delineated line of life and then death. And nearby was an old chemical tank. So I'm wondering, what can I plant there to kind of purify that toxicity and when it grows up I can slash and burn it you know in a barrel or not put that toxicity back in the land thank you well I thought that was a great one for Paul Wheaton I have to tell you I have not listened to Paul's response yet but I'm going to give you something I might consider in this situation if nothing will grow there I don't know what you're going to plant that's going to grow there so um, I might go in and in that area remove that soil and, and maybe take it to a landfill where it's already disgusting and replace a few inches at least in that entire area with good quality topsoil. Plant into that and plant some species that I would have to research that has some ability to remove toxins so at least the initial healing can begin and at least there's something there to get those roots down into the ground and get the thing sprouted. I don't know what Paul's going to say. I really didn't have a good answer for that one. That's why I kicked the football over to Paul. Paul, uh, what would you do with this? Hi, Jack. Hi, Kevin. This is Paul Wheaton at Permies.com. Uh, okay, so you got grass that is brown next to a barrel that may have contained toxic gig. Well, first of all, I think that the thing to do is you got to do a barrel ectomy. you got to get the source of the toxic gig off of your land. Um, the next thing is, is that I, I think if it were me, I would like want to mark it out probably with, uh, I like using those fiberglass fence posts for electric fences and, uh, and label it. So that way I know that here lies toxic gick and I probably don't want to plant edibles here. Uh, the next thing is, is that you said that the grass is brown. Well, it sounds like the, there was grass there at one point, maybe fairly recently. Did the, did the toxic gick just recently kill the grass? And, like, there's grass farther away that's currently green. Is that what's going on? 
Um, next thing is is that the the uh, the most popular thing for uh, toxic gick remediation is oyster mushrooms. Now the oyster mushrooms will break down a lot of toxic things, um, especially when you're talking about something that's a compound or or a molecular kind of deal where it's got multiple elements making up something. Like for example, diesel. Then it'll break it down into something that's totally okay. But when you get to your heavy metals, those are elemental. Those are going to be things that can't be broken down. But the oyster mushrooms will take that up. And then, so I would say plant your oyster mushrooms. It'll suck out the toxic gick, and it'll convert your toxic gick. And then I'd harvest a whole bunch of them oyster mushrooms, and I'd put them into a barrel and get them the hell off the land. Now, as far as, like, what you do with the barrel... That's going to change county to county as to what's okay and not okay and, and stuff like that. And that's, that's beyond what I'm able to answer for you. But um, when it comes, I mean, a big angle of permaculture is the uh, soil remediation stuff. And the most popular tool in the toolbox is the oyster mushroom. Now, if you talk about water, if you've got some water that's a bit yucky, then uh, the thing is, is uh, watercress, watercress. But then the thing of same thing with the oyster mushrooms. The watercress will then be loaded to the gills with toxic gick, and you don't want that. So uh, get right out there. And then, and then the next thing is, I'd plant. I would plant trees. Once once things start to grow there again, I would plant timber-based trees. I'd probably start off with a black locust. Um, maybe put in something like uh, 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 cottonwood or a poplar. Something that's gonna that's gonna take up stuff and turn it into wood. And a lot of the the cottonwoods and poplars, uh, maybe even willows, will will take a lot of stuff that's toxic in the soil and um, break it down into stuff that's safe, much like how the oyster mushrooms do it, but not quite as effective. And then the heavy metals just end up in the wood, but they're locked in there real good. I uh, hope this helps. Well, great answer, and, you know, we say the numbers, 866-65-FIG. So now Paul's got me thinking, and I'm thinking something that maybe maybe Paul and I both should have said that we didn't, and that is, man, that barrel that, that Paul says to get rid of or the tank that Paul says to get rid of, stick your nose in there, give it a whiff, and see if you can figure out what it was. Don't go breathing it in left and right and making yourself sick, but what is it? Can you determine what the chemical is? If it's diesel, um, I think you can, you can, you know, like what Paul said with soil remediation techniques using oyster mushroom or other things that might work, you can basically recover that soil. Diesel fuel and gasoline will eventually break down quite a bit. In essence, they're organic matter. Or is this some kind of freaking toxic herbicide? You know, is it, is it, was it a big tank full of freaking atrazine? Uh, or glyphosate. I mean, that would be things that would make the ground dead. And then what's that going to lead? So I think the other thing that I would add to this, if there is any way, shape, or form that it can be done, find out what it is. But the, otherwise, I love Paul's answer. And I think going to something that's like a timber-based uh, resource or something like that would be a great way to get that stuff kind of locked up uh into something that nobody's going to eat anyway, and then let nature do its thing over uh, decades or even centuries. Uh, great uh, assist there from Paul. Thank you. And, uh, again, I would try to find out exactly what this stuff is because it sounds like we're not sure yet. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Top uh, W. Cohn in the forums from North Olmsted, Ohio. I want to comment about uh, fear there real quick. You've often pointed out to people who are afraid that uh, their land's going to be taken away, their garden will be seized, etc. And fear is a primal 
feeling that we have as people. I see it all the time when I'm doing my one of my part-time jobs with Cleveland in the EMS field. We see people who are afraid to get anything new because it's just going to be taken away. Uh, my mother-in-law has this problem in Louisville. Her house is broken into, and everything that was taken, she's not replacing because someone's just going to break in and steal it again. And we all have this fear that we try to overcome. We need to recognize it. Even people who say they don't have that fear still comes out every so often. I'm thinking of this uh, episode 865 where you mentioned to the person who had 3,000 pounds of, of propane that had to be registered with the government. Even you slipped in and said, then the government knows it's there and in a time of crisis will come take it away. That's the type of fear that we have to be recognizing, that it's there, it's part of our human makeup. And the real trick is overcoming that. It's the fear that we need to overcome. Just uh, two cents. Thought I'd point it out that even a great guy like you still has a little bit of fear in you. Thank you. Out. Well, it's a great point, and the first thing I'll say before I disagree with the concept on why I made the recommendation I did with propane, not being fear, is freely admit as a man that, of course, I have fears. And as a man with fears, I try to always assess my fears and take them into two primary categories and then when they're into one of the two categories into uh, two additional categories. And you can't always do this because sometimes fear is very situational, very short-term based, and you just have to respond. But the first thing is if I have a fear where I have time to think about it, like I'm going to do this or that, what am I going to do, and how am I going to format this or whatever, and there's a fear there, is it a healthy fear or an unhealthy fear? A healthy fear is real easy to uh, explain. If you're standing in the middle of a road and a truck is barreling down on you at 85 miles an hour and about to run you over if you don't immediately get off that road, damn the consequences of landing in a briar patch. You, you, you're better off in a briar patch than hit by a ten-wheeler. And that fear inside your gut that will make you respond is a healthy fear. There's other things that are healthy fears. Um, a healthy fear would be... Uh, for a person that was lacking morals, right? I wouldn't have this particular situation, but uh, if I was in a store and I saw something and I wanted to take it and my morality wasn't sufficient to uh, rein me in from stealing, the fear of incarceration and ruining my life would be a healthy fear because once I've been arrested and have, you got it, right? So that's, that would be another example of a healthy fear. So not all fears are unhealthy. And usually what I'm trying to combat on the show with people and, and make them think is unhealthy fears. I will not own a piece of property because there's a off chance the government will take it away with him in a domain. That is an unhealthy fear. Considering the possibility and evaluating a piece of property based on its potential for eminent domain, such as if it's laying right, you're looking at a piece of property, uh, and you know, you want to build your life there, But right now the planned Trans-Texas Corridor runs right smack across it and saying, I don't want to take that risk. That's not a fear. That's a logistical choice. That's not even, that is, that's not even, fear's not even coming into that equation because I haven't yet acted. I'm, I can buy any piece of land I want. Uh, and there is a reasonable, uh, likelihood 
that I'm going to be forced off that piece of land within a domain. That fight, that fight is going to be lost. It's already got a lot of steam behind it. The route's already there, so maybe it's not a good idea if that's one of my concerns, and maybe I'm better off going elsewhere. That's a logistical decision. My advice on the propane tanks, with if you go over 2,000 uh, gallons, uh, 2,000 gallons in tanks of propane, that then you have to report that to the government. It's a logistical, not a fear-based decision. Uh, when I say logistical, not fear-based, is is there a track record that under times of national emergency that large resources have been seized by the government? Absolutely, 100% yes. We study history not so that we won't repeat the mistakes of the past, folks. How many times do I have to tell you this? We study history because we are going to repeat the past and we need to be prepared for it. Some dumbass will do the same thing some dumbass did in the past, and this time it will be worse because we have better technology and more ability to screw things up. So we need to study the past to plan for the future, not to avoid the past, because it's going to happen again. People are going to do the same dumb shit. So um, if if you had a resource like 5,000 gallons of propane and uh, there was some kind of an emergency, you might even be willing to share it, but you'd probably like to share it under your own choice. Can you trust that the government will let you do it that way, or would they come in and just take all of it? And they might come in and take all of it. Now, let's say let's say that the rule was over 100 gallons. So a little 100-gallon tank, anything bigger than 100. 100-gallon tank, you could put on a dolly and move it around. So you wanted to put in a 1,000-pound pig, a 1,000-gallon pig, right, or even a 500-gallon tank, and, and, and you had to register it at that. I would probably say go ahead and do it. Right. The reason that I said make the choice to not go over that number is because 2,000 gallons is a lot of that. I mean, that's, that is enough for self-sufficiency for probably year and a half, two years. Rationed, it could last five. So logistically, why take the risk of something when it's not necessary? Now, if you were putting in, uh, a facility that was going to run on a lot of it, a commercial facility, and that was going to be one of your fuels of choice, well, then you go ahead and do it, right? So it was for a private citizen, for personal preparedness, don't cross the threshold because you're losing more than you're gaining. That's not really fear, that's a logistical decision. So I think that Top makes some great points about fear, and we do all have fear. And anybody that says, I'm not afraid of anything, right, is a liar, is a liar. Uh, especially the people that say, oh, I'm not afraid of anything because I believe in God. Well, um, not to lecture anybody's own faith to themselves, but I believe Jesus had fear. Okay? And I believe there's a reason that that's in the narrative. To understand that all human beings have fear. And we have to decide, is it a healthy fear or an unhealthy fear? Now, when it moves into the category of an unhealthy fear, it's a fear that we should cast off, but for some reason we can't, Do we, then, the, then the subcategories are, do we control the fear or does the fear control us? And as long as we control the fear and we can direct it and we can use it, we can convert the unhealthy fear into a healthy fear. Because generally when we're afraid of something, unless we're in a paranoid state, there's a legitimate threat. We may have overplayed the percentage. 
It might be a 1% threat, and now it's acting like a 90% threat in our mind. We have to channel that and control that fear. Fear can be a very positive force when it's controlled, and it can be the absolute most negative force when it's left to its end. The thing about fear is generally if you don't address fear, it acts just like cancer, and it metastasizes. It becomes worse and worse and worse. And a lot of situations, by the time people finally face whatever it is that they were fearing, it's nowhere near as bad as they had built it up in their mind. This is why great writers like Stephen King know that the secret to writing a novel that makes you scared, that makes you feel it in the pit of your stomach, is to not fully describe the threat. To hearken back to when you were a little kid and you were afraid that something was under your bed, you didn't really know what it was, but you knew something was there. And to try to put you in touch with that. That's how, that's how great writers in the horror and the fear genres connect with that primal instinct. And we can understand that and we can use that so that when we have a situation where I'm afraid that something can happen, one of the first things we say, well, what's the worst that could happen if that happened? Uh, an example would be, uh, Tops, I think you said it was his mom, if I got that wrong, I'm sorry, but, uh, was robbed and, and then, well, I'm not going to replace anything because somebody will just take it away again. That's an unhealthy, unchanneled, uncontrolled fear. If the response was, I'm going to replace the things that, uh, that I most want first and I most need first, and then I'm going to add from there. Uh, but one of the other things I'm going to do is put in an alarm system, increase my security around my home. Uh, that's really not fear-based. That's logistical. I'm now in touch with the reality. My, 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 uh, my normalcy bias has been broken that everything's always just going to be super and nobody's going to take away from and everybody's my friend. And that, that fantasy I was living in is gone now. So now I'm going to address that through improvement of security and greater situational awareness, logistical. I just won't do it because that's fear-based. And that's something that people need to get beyond. Because if you let fear prevent you from, from doing the things you want to do because you might lose them, Either way, you don't have them. Whether you lose them in the risk or you simply never acquire them, you're still doing without. And in most situations, you could sum it up with the old cliche, it's better to have loved and lost than ever to have loved at all. Well, if you want a great, beautiful place and you build it, if in some way you lose it, hopefully you've insured it or whatever, at least you did it. And once you've done something, here's the secret, guys. You know it can be done again. This is why people that are millionaires that become penniless a year or two later, you find them, they've, they've, they've made themselves millionaires again because once they know it's possible, once they know it's possible, they always figure out a way to do it again. All right, with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this may be the most important phone call I've ever made to the show. Jason from PA here. Uh, back in November, I tried to refinance and was turned down because I didn't have two years of employment history, having been one of the many who went through a bout of unemployment. Um, I actually appealed the process, and it didn't seem like it was going anywhere. And then after four months, it got approved. I mean, both my wife and I had really good credit scores in the 800. We basically eliminated almost all of our debt. Um, we had about 15 grand on hand at the time for a $100,000 mortgage. And we, we were like, come on. I mean, just because I was unemployed shouldn't be the only reason I couldn't get a loan. And after four months, they approved it. We were able to get a 3% loan on a 15-year mortgage. We were able to wrap in the one uh, loan we had for the new furnace. And we are now paying $50 more a month on our mortgage, but $150 less a month. 
going to pay our house off in 15 years and save $88,000, Jack. And I just want to encourage your listeners out there that if they've been responsible, if they have savings, if they went through about a bad luck, to uh, not just give up if they're turned down, that sometimes you've got to keep pressing onward, sometimes you've got to push, you've got to appeal. Um, but, you know, this makes such a difference in our family's plan to pay off our debt. We're going to pay off our mortgage in 15 years, and I've calculated that if we can just throw $1,000 every year um, from our income tax return, we'll be able to pay it off in closer to 12 years. So I'm just encouraging all your listeners, um, the rates are really low. If you can do it, um, and if you can do it wisely, um, don't let that first no stop you. Keep pressing, and they may be able to work with you. Have a good one, Jack. Completely agree, and I would say no, don't just repeal the place you've applied. Apply to multiple locations. Look for smaller banks that underwrite their own loans. And another way that you can kind of shortcut this sometimes, sometimes we don't want to do it, but sometimes it just makes sense, is increasing our down payment. Um, there's a, a, a fairly good possibility that when they went to do this $100,000 loan, if they would have went in with $20,000 versus $15,000 and hit the 20% threshold, that the first application would have been approved or the response to it would have taken much less effort and you would have been much easier to get uh, that loan approved. So uh, it's it's one of the things that generally unstops a clogged system is to have a larger down payment. The lending uh, authority knows that you have more skin in the game, and they also know that that means they have less, right? So if I'm going to loan you money on a house, I'm obviously going to see the house as collateral. And as I look forward at the economy and I see shaky and concerns, the more equity that's in that home, the lower my risk Right, Because the odds that I can seize that home, maybe have to clean it up if it was vacated in a, in a poor manner, put it on the market and recover my investment are higher. And if, you know, if I can get you to put in 30%, then it, it, so the down payment issue continues to erode the fear and resistance of the lender to lend. But if you don't have a down payment, or you just don't want to commit all the money there and you want to save that five grand maybe for improvements to the property or what have you, um, then yeah, I completely agree here. Keep going back. Keep writing rebuttals, write letters. Uh, one of the houses I purchased, uh, I had to write two or three different letters to get it done, to get the mortgage. I was unemployed but self-employed at the time, and this was when things were a little bit easier. And I was going in with 20% down, and I still had to write a couple letters, but we got the loan. And uh, I think that right now, if you're buying property to live on and you have a plan to pay for it and it's going to save you money like in this situation where I, I don't even think this was a new house. I think this was a refinance in the case with, with, with Jason. It's going to save you money and reduce your term at the same time. Man, uh, what more could you ask for than 3%? Uh, you're going to beat inflation with a 3% interest rate on a mortgage. You're going to flat out beat inflation. Uh, the worst things get... Uh, with a low-cost loan uh, and, and something that you can afford to pay for, let's say you got unemployed for six months, you can just keep making that payment, boy, this is this is a good time to buy. It, it really is. Buying 20 houses to rent out, don't do that! This is the, I, It could turn out to be the most brilliant play you've ever made in your life, or it could bankrupt you into misery for the rest of your life. I don't know which way that wind's going to blow right now. But for your like what Chris Dwayne calls your castle, 
this is a good time to establish that. Uh, I don't think you're going to see mortgage interest rates go below uh, anywhere close to what they are right now. Stay away from variable rates. What do you think we? Where do you think we go from three percent? With that, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John from Central Kentucky. Um, I'm just interested in your thoughts on the process of making beef or venison jerky. Um, I've been making beef jerky for several years now by just preparing a simple marinade of spices, but I do not use curing salts or sodium nitrites. And also I use a simple dehydrator that does not have a temperature adjustment on it. You know, it may not cook the meat at a very high temperature. Um, But personally, I think that this is a a healthy and easy way to prepare the jerky because, you know, you don't have to add the sodium to the food. Um, you know, by using sodium nitrates or curing salts. Now, I have a few friends who are deer hunters, and they make venison jerky using the marinade kits that you buy at uh, hunting supply stores. But I cannot convince my friends that preparing, preparing the beef jerky without using these curing salts is safe and probably he- healthy, you know, without all the sodium. So what are your thoughts on this? Thanks. Well, I agree with you, and I'm more of a biltong guy, but I'm not even going to go into biltong other than it's made very similar to the way you do it with thicker cuts of meats. You also use vinegar, and you dry it in the shade in a low-humidity environment, and you don't cook it at all. And I eat that all the time, and it's certainly less cooked, if we're going to call it that, than meat that was dehydrated in a dehydrator, and I don't get sick, and I don't die, and I've been eating it for, oh, going back 12 years, I guess, when I first read about it in a book by Peter Hathaway Capstick, and he put his recipe on how to make it. Those who want to make biltong, I will put uh, a link to a couple of videos I did on that on YouTube in today's show notes, and I believe that biltong, in all seriousness, is superior to jerky. But to evaluate your question, well, we have to go back and go, well, what is jerky? What was beef jerky originally, deer jerky? Let's just call it meat jerky, red meat jerky. What was it originally for and how was it originally done? Well, um, early man would end up killing this great big creature and realized that you know it was an opportunity to put some meat aside. So they would look at the meat and say, "What meat just left to itself stores the longest?" And the answer was lean cuts of meat. So the early man would eat organ meats uh, and fatty cuts of meat, and even on game there are fatty cuts of meat and, and fat and tallow, and would eat that first or render tallow into something that stored longer term, uh, or they would take this lean meat and they would put some of it aside. And initially, the way this probably happened, and I'm playing, you know, anthropologist here, is man would just cut meat off and find meat dried on the bone later that they didn't get off and they ate it and they didn't die, they didn't get sick, and it tasted pretty good. So, uh, the thought was if we can get it to dry faster, and, uh, then we, we have an ability to store more of it and we can get this process quicker and we can get on our way as a nomadic tribesman. So the thought was, you know, it doesn't take a genius, even a caveman can do it, as they say in the commercial, that if we cut meat thin, it will dry faster because more of the surface area is exposed. Even if we don't get that that's the why behind it, if we just try a couple different ways, we're soon going to learn that thin pieces of meat dry out faster. Uh, eventually, people start using things like salt, and they start to realize that salt dries things out. So if we salt the thin meat, it will dry out even faster, and we end up with salted dried meat. Well, some genius figures out that not only will salt and air and thin cuts dry meat, but if we hang it up in the sun, it'll dry out. So there's your original jerky. Thin cut, 
salted meat hung up in the sun to dry. And that's the chief way that it differs from what I started talking about, which was built on thick cuts of meat, more of a dry pickling using salt, coriander, and, and black pepper dried in the shade. More of a mummification process than a drying process. It's good stuff. Check it out. Uh, on the video. So that's the jerky that, of yore. That's the jerky that the mountain men carried with them as they crossed the divide. That was the jerky they made out of everything from deer to beaver. And foodborne illnesses were largely uh, not a problem in those times other than things like fleas getting into corn from rats, spreading, spreading you know, typhus and plague and things like that. So... We know that the jerky and the dried meat thing has this long track record of being safe just the way you've done it. Now, what about the dehydrator? If you want to use a dehydrator, that's fine. But classic jerky, the really great stuff is smoked, and it's cold smoked. And here's how I imagine this happens. So the guy hangs his jerky up, and he's got some salt on it, maybe some pepper, maybe some other seasonings, maybe some local herbs that he's found, and he's got all his meat, and he's hung it up, and it's a little bit warm for this time of the year, and he sees flies buzzing around it. He says, I know, I know. Flies don't like fire, so he builds a fire just underneath it. Not so it's cooking it, just to the front of it allows the wind to take the smoke over it. And then he eats and he goes, mmm, smoke good, yes. And all right, So then, then somebody figures out how to build a smokehouse, and then we start smoking our jerky with a cold smoke. So I would tell you that the only thing that I would recommend is see if you can figure out how to do cold smoking of that jerky. Uh, it, it's, it's more sustainable because you can use scrap pieces of hickory or mesquite or whatever you can get to do the smoking. Uh, you don't need electricity to run your dehydrator. I don't believe a dehydrator, an open oven, I don't believe any of that stuff is necessary for the production of biltong or jerky. I'm not worried about cooking red meat. I'm really not. As long as it's full cuts of good meat and it's handled properly. Uh, I wouldn't do something like that. if you like. There's people that make jerky out of basically hamburger meat. To me, that has to reach a temperature at some point of 160 degrees to kill the potential E. coli and other infections that exist in ground meat that are generally not present uh, in larger quality cuts of meat or certainly not in meat that you've harvested from the wild. Certain meats we don't do this with. I would not do this with poultry, and I would not do this uh, with, uh, with pork. And I know people have done it and gotten away with it, but I would not take the no-heat, dry-only, smoke-only, or biltong approach with anything capable of carrying salmonella or trichinosis. And just about anything else, uh, red meat, I would do it. Uh, I am not enough biologically astute on biological sciences to comment on things like doing this with rabbit and squirrel. To me, they're smaller cuts of meat anyway. Uh, I have smoked squirrel. I've brined squirrel, hung it up like a little deer in a smokehouse, smoked it, and that was good. But I really don't see that as the same. There's more. Uh, when I did that, there was some heat transfer. It wasn't a pure cold smoke. Uh, I've done that with rabbits as well. And generally, after that, then I would take that and put it on the grill till it was warm. And that wasn't really a thing to to worry about any kind of infection or anything. It was more just to taste good that way. So uh, those are my thoughts on that. And we could definitely do that type of thing with pork as well and then cook it. Uh, but sodium nitrite, sodium nitrate, I do not use at all in anything that I prepare on my own, period. And I don't think you should either. Let's take another call. Oh, last on that. You can't convince your friends? Stop trying. Stop wasting your time. Just stop wasting your time. When people have their head up their ass about something like that, they're not going to listen to you. You tell them once and you say, hey, if you don't want to eat my jerky, fine. 
I'll eat my jerky. Maybe they'll come around, but if you push, they'll never become receptive. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from Oklahoma, and I have a question about uh, gold and silver uh, in case of an economic collapse. I was talking to a local prepper, and he basically told me that I was foolish for uh, purchasing gold and silver because in an economic collapse, uh, gold or silver would be basically worthless and that the only thing that would be of any value would be goods to barter with. Uh, you know, I told him, you know, hey, it's a good idea just to buy gold and silver just for investments, help protect against inflation and so forth. Um, he told me that it was better to invest in bulk ammo, even if you don't have uh, a gun, you know, to, uh, that takes that ammo, which just seems totally foolish to me. But in the case of a economic collapse, would precious metals be essentially worthless? Um, what's a good example that I could give you more, or some good reason why it would not be uh, a complete worthless investment or a worthless asset in an economic collapse? Uh, Jack, from you know, I've listened to you, man, almost from probably episode 20, 25 or so, and uh, you've really changed my life quite a bit. My wife just about thinks I'm crazy, but, you know, hey, uh, it is what it is. Jack, thanks a lot. Um, I enjoy listening to the show. Uh, you have a good day. Well, first and foremost, I would say that your friend is probably not the person to listen to. And the primary reason that he's telling you that is because he hasn't done it. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to examine it. He's got his own thought process. And to defend himself from the fear that you might be right and he might be wrong, he says, oh, it's worthless. Now, why do I think that gold and silver will be worthwhile investments in the uh, in the eventuality of an economic collapse? Because in every economic collapse that ever occurred, at some point in the rebuilding process or during the breakdown, it behooved people to have their money in precious metals. Every single time. Okay. If you had held on to gold and silver during the Weimar Republic, you could have walked in and bought a hotel for a few coins at some point during the process. Um, I know for a fact that when Argentina melted down, gold and silver uh, became highly valuable in trade. Fernando Fairfowl Aguirre, who uh, is the person that I've had on the show that's actually lived through an economic collapse, um, said flat out when I talked to him about this, he said, I saw people... Selling merchandise, I've watched people pull a gold chain that used to be a necklace that's now too short to be used as a necklace out of their pocket, count a number of links on it, take a knife, hit it, cut off four links, and give it to a guy and trade it for product in exchange. Now, he also said some days you can't do a lot with gold and silver. Some days people want cash. It all depends on the cycle that you're in. But the reality is at some point along the way, gold and silver have always paid off. So we study history again, children, not so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. So when the mistakes come back around again, we know how to deal with them. So there's this track record of thousands and thousands of years of gold and silver being accepted as money and gold and silver being the only safe haven when currencies collapse. So why would we think the future would be any different? The, 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 here's the thing. What the what people that are saying the gold and silver will be worthless in an economic collapse are saying is, if somebody's hungry, right, and they don't have any food, but they have uh, a gallon of gasoline, and you say to them, I'll give you three silver dimes for that gallon of gasoline, they're probably going to say, eh, I don't think so. 
I need some beans, right? But <laughs> this is assuming that things get that bad and never get any better, in which case we're all dead anyway. The, the, the fundamental nature of human beings is to engage in community and engage in commerce. And at some point, the whole, I got what I got and I'm not giving anything away, it's all mine, 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 it, 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 that happens in a cat catastrophe has to go away because no one has enough to completely live without anybody else for perpetuity. And in fact, most people that think they do aren't even close, and those that do for a time, they're going to all go hide anyway. So they're not going to be part of this economy. right? The other thing is, your friend with his head up his fourth point of contact to the shoulders, I'm sorry to say, assumes that he knows what an economic collapse is. He most certainly does not. Because an economic collapse can take a variety of forms. Is it Soviet Union? Is it Argentina? Is it Greece? Is it Weimar? I don't know. Is it Holland during the, the, the collapse that came because of people investing in tulip bulbs? I, I, I don't know what you're going to deal with, but I do know this, that at some point there will be a need to restore commerce, and the history of fiat currency collapses is either they, they get replaced by a commodity-backed currency or they get replaced by a new fiat currency, And the, the, what you get in exchange for the old currency is, is very much in favor of the government and very much not in favor of the people. So um, I would just say that sometimes when you get advice from certain people, you say, what knowledge and authority and history do they base that knowledge on? And I would say knowledge lacking, authority none, history ignored with your friends. I, I just wouldn't take his advice at all to be worth anything. Other than there is a point to understand that there can be situations where your gold and silver won't do anything for you. Because if I am more concerned about whether I eat tomorrow rather than I have a few dimes in my pocket, my food will be my priority. But that, these situations, these people are so myopic, so one-dimensional to think, well, then there's an economic collapse, that's what it looks like. For how long? In what way? Where? What part of the country? What is the government's response? What is the community's response? And the answer is you don't know. All you know is the goal is to rebuild society, to put things back some way to the way that they were. And at some point for that to happen, commerce has to occur. And whatever the currency is, gold and silver have always had value. So the only way gold and silver will become worthless for any significant length of time will be if a meteor hits planet Earth and turns all metal into one or the other. Till such time, they, are scarcely, they have scarcity, they have divisibility, they have intrinsic worth, and they have a track record of being accepted as money longer than any other commodity on the planet. Someone that makes a statement, they'll be completely worthless in an economic collapse, is frankly, I'm sorry to say, a dumbass. They're a dumbass. Unless they qualify it by saying, for a time. Because I can make a case for that myself. I would tell you that I think that time will be very short-lived. Very short-lived. As soon as commerce needs to take place between more than two parties, we need a means of exchange. So if I'm giving you bread for, for beans, that's one thing. If I have bread, you have beans, but you don't want bread, you want gasoline. What are you going to take? I don't have gasoline. I don't have any. I don't have any spare. I don't have any at all. But I do got bread and I got money. 
Then you'll take money and you'll go buy gasoline from a third party. To have commerce between more than three people, between more than two parties, so to have three people or more, for that to function, and any, any interval of regularity requires a means of exchange. And I would say, please do tell me, any currency system that has a longer, more successful, more proven track record than gold and silver. And when you do, I'll be open to being wrong. Until then, I'm going to save gold and silver as part of my overall plan, and I think you should too. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Trey from Texas. I uh, had a question for you about libertarian mindset on a specific issue. Real quick background. Uh, I was raised as a Republican. Uh, began reading the Constitution independently on my own uh, and realized we weren't getting it right. Uh, even as a Republican, I was pushing my belief system onto others uh, and began to realize that was not what the Constitution was designed, not what this country was drafted for, uh, making a platform. And uh, fundamentally, for instance, if a liberal Democrat wants to believe that a gun-free life makes them safer, I mean, they're, they're fully entitled to do that. I don't believe that way, uh, but if somebody wants to believe that way, if they want to move to a place that's a quote-unquote gun-free zone and believe that, that makes them safer, they're entitled to so long as they're not trying to encroach on my liberty to you know, have guns and to shoot them and to use them for protection and safety. Um, I realize that this country was built on allowing a person to believe however they want to believe, again, as long as it was not violating my liberties. Uh, I had to deprogram a lot of my thinking and then kind of reprogram myself to think constitutionally as I was moving out of that. My question lies in the libertarian mindset of zoning laws. Uh, for any listeners out that don't know what zoning laws are or maybe have a different vernacular, in Texas, a zoning law is just a set of codes about how your house and property is allowed to look within a neighborhood. Uh, it can be lax as, just don't let your house look like crap, or it can be as strict as, your grass has to be three inches and you can't use sheet metal on a building in the, in the neighborhood. Um, my knee-jerk reaction is you cannot dictate that. Um, because that's that person's liberty to live how they want to live. Um, my wife brought up a good point this week. She said, uh, well, what if the property is really ugly and it looks like crap and it's devaluing my property and it's making me have a hard time selling my house or my house has to be sold uh, cheaper? I think the answer lies in my relationship with that neighbor, that ability to talk to them uh, and visit with them and, and have that relationship where we can work that out. But uh, I just am not sure. So just wanted to hear how would you answer that question, Jack? And uh, what would you do, what would you say uh, about that situation? Jack, appreciate you. You've been a major part of helping me deprogram uh, and reprogram myself to think constitutionally. Uh, I appreciate you as always. Thank you for all you do. Well, on the deprogramming, you're dead right. And let me just say on the, the, the right to live in a gun-free area, I think that we find the solution to the gun-free area, the... Uh, uh, the uh, the, the uh, what am I looking for the uh, the zoning laws all of it in that I believe that adults in this country that are of sound mind should be allowed to enter into legally binding contracts in a private sector environment and the role of government then is to assure the proper and legal enforcement of those contracts. Okay, that's my libertarian view. Some libertarians believe that that should always be a third-party independent arbitrator that's in the private sector as well. I don't. I think that is one of the roles of limited government is determining whether the contracts are. So with zoning, I hate HOAs because of what always happens there. But I support their right to exist, and I support your right to live in one. What I don't support is your right to force an HOA on me in a pre-existing environment. 
So if a bunch of citizens in my neighborhood want to get together and create an HOA, I believe that for, for my home to become part of that HOA, I have to make that choice. And if I'm one in the middle of everybody, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. And they have to decide what they want to do about that. It's better for them to go elsewhere because I was already here. And I think that's the precedent that needs to be established. So the things like if you're really concerned about the appearance of your neighborhood, that the neighborhood itself makes those decisions. But you're right. This is you have to do two things. What is the problem and how do we fix it? Uh, is what everybody always wants to look at. That seems like a logical thing. What is the problem and how do we fix it? So the problem is the guy down the street has a junk car in the front yard. He has weeds growing up through it. Uh, his roof's falling off. His fence is falling over. He cuts his grass three times a year. It looks like crap. I want to sell my house. And now when people drive around the corner to come to my house, they see that. It turns them off. They don't want to buy it. It's a legitimate concern. So this, the, the, the problem solution mentality that we live in, the microwave solution that we live in, uh, is, well, somebody should make him do that. So since there's not an HOA here, I'm going to call my local code official, and they're going to come over. And nobody in the neighborhood goes over and goes, hey, dude, uh, what's going on here? What's up? And he might go, man, I lost my job. The car doesn't run, whatever. Now, it used to be that in a neighborhood like that, all the people would come out and go, dude, how can we help you? And they would help it because no one wants to live in that environment, especially if they've moved to a, a place where it's going to matter. If you want to live like that, generally you live out in the middle of nowhere. Or you live in a place where everybody lives like that and nobody cares. So if you want to fix that, then, then generally the reason people don't fix it is they can't afford it. So it's about the neighborhoods beginning their own self-policing, but instead of policing the action, police the safety and security of your neighbor. So that house that looks that way did not get that way overnight. And the reality is that until somebody wanted to sell, nobody gave a shit. Now it's a problem. So you've ignored the problem, and you haven't taken personal responsibility, and now you want a zoning law or government to fix the problem for you. So I believe that in our neighborhoods, we should be vigilant to problems that are affecting our neighbors. And when we see a place beginning to deteriorate, we should realize it's probably not because that guy's a jerk-ass. It's probably because that person's having problems. And if the neighborhood were there to help them, instead of, you know, we really don't like the fact that you didn't cut the grass this week, you know. Maybe if it's a week, you let it go. And after like two weeks, you go, dude, what's is your lawnmower broken or something? And maybe the guy goes, man, I'm just working so hard, I haven't been able to do it, and my wife's sick, and I, and you go, you know what, man, I'll cut your grass for you, right? <laughs> How hard is that? How hard is that? And all of a sudden, now there's a relationship, and as things, you know, there, there are places where, and, and this is the reality, that there's times where people go into such a declined state that they're going to lose their house anyway. The house doesn't have to deteriorate along the way. The neighborhood can be there, try to help that person, try to build that community, and This is where people don't get it. This is where people don't get it. The very fact that instead of doing what I should do, I can do what's easy. Pick up the phone, call county or city or residential code, whatever it is in your environment, and make a phone call and bitch and have some guy, some deputy dog guy that was given some freaking BS stamp that says he has authority to go out and harass my neighbor versus me helping my neighbor. The fact that I can do that prevents the neighborhood from taking care of itself. So, so when I look at a problem, I don't say, what's the problem, how do we fix it? My first question is, what's the cause of the problem? 
So what's the cause of the problem when we have a house in a neighborhood going into decay? Generally, the cause of the problem is the person's on hard times and no one's helping. So do I make that person's time harder and cause them problems that they already have? Do I aggravate the problem or do I remedy the problem? Now, let's look at other things. Let's say a guy down the road decides he wants to live like Beverly Hillbillies because he likes it. Well, I do think there is some level of common sense that should be enforceable in a residential street. But I also think that it's a very slippery slope. And as soon as we start walking on it, we end up with people like Jan Klein being harassed over a yard sale, even though they're in the backyard, who's dying. And apparently no one in that neighborhood gave a shit enough to go find out what was going on and ask to help rather than call and bitch. So I think that we, as citizens, have to understand that, yes, there are certain authorities that exist to protect the value of a neighborhood for existence, uh, for instance, with certain zoning laws and regulations, but our first step should be to solve the problems ourselves. If you want to live a libertarian lifestyle, remember that's one of the principles I've given you. Right? I gave you a whole show on how to live a personal libertarian lifestyle. Always try to solve your problem as an individual before you involve authority. And if we did that, most of these problems would not be problems. Now, on a, the mile-high view, I think most zoning regulations are ominous and unnecessary. I think they're ominous and unnecessary. I've seen shows where well, you can't put you know, one more window on that wall because it's a fire hazard. I mean, come on. Who decided that? And I know some firefighter's going to write me, and I'm, I'm not even going to read it. I should be able to put as many windows in my home as I want to. And these are not houses that are two feet apart that look like row houses with a little angle. These, these are like a normal house with plenty of room between, more room than most residential neighborhoods on the one that I saw. You know, you can't, you know, the, the person wanted to put a, a second story on, but then the floor space allocation exceeded the, the, the that type of shit has got to go. But, HOAs, I think, are the solution. For the uptight, pain-in-the-ass dickhead that wants to live that lifestyle, go somewhere and build a planned community with an HOA and leave the rest of us the hell alone. But what, what really, I think, is where the HOAs go out of bounds is when they try to convert an existing neighborhood and there's people that don't want it and they try to convert it by a majority, that infringes on the individual right. If I'm sorry, if there are a thousand houses around me that want an HOA and I give them the middle finger and I say no, I should retain that right as a citizen. I was already there before you did this. Now, if all of you seem to think that it's that big an issue, I got a solution. Every one of you that has your head up your ass about this thing and wants an HOA, all thousand of you, all thousand of you, give me $5,000 and I'll go away and I'll never come back. I mean, that, that's how I would hold the line there, unless I really wanted to stay. And then I'd say there is no price. Just some thoughts, just some ways to think about things. But uh, you're absolutely right when you say deprogramming is important. And it is okay for people to disagree with us. It is okay for people to think that they're better off without guns. That's okay. As long as you don't try to take mine. As long as you don't try to turn my neighborhood into a gun-free zone. If you and your group of schlucks want to go out and create gun-free, utopian, libtard-associated uh, idiocy land, and you want to call it that, I will fight to the death for your right to do so. And if you want to put up a fence around there and say nobody comes in here with a gun, but nobody has to come in here and anybody that's in here can leave, 
I will again defend that to the death. But if you try to put that wall around where somebody already lives and doesn't want to live your way, now we're in totalitarianism. Now we're into socialism. In the first way, the idea has to compete in the open market of ideas to prove its legitimacy. And the other way, competition is squashed through authoritarian, totalitarian means. That is not a republic. The reason I love this country, and I still love this country in spite of all our mistakes and everything that's wrong with it, and the, and the, the, the horrible, horrible place financially I think this nation is headed, the reason I still love this country is in its form, it truly is a republic. And people that say, well, we've strayed from there. We're not there anymore. They've trampled the cause. Yeah, but it's your freaking job. It's your job to fix that. It's my job to fix that. It's not up to them to let us have our freedom. It's up to us to claim our freedom. And instead of just who we vote for or fighting to get a law revealed or repealed or whatever, we could start by there's a problem in my neighborhood. Let's fix it as a neighborhood versus let's call Joe Blow jackass to come down here and write somebody a ticket who isn't going to pay it anyway because they're already broken. That's why their house looks the way that it does. Start talking to your neighbors. Solve your own problems. Fight for your republic by fighting for your individual liberty, your community's liberty, and realize that the battle is not a battle for who can go where and do what. It's a battle to go where you want to, do what you want to, do it legally, do it legitimately, and prove that your method is better. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.